Our scripture tonight is 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not have the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Should I stay or should I go now? This is the question facing John's audience in our text tonight. Whether it is nobler in mind to depart from John's teaching thus far or to abide, to persevere, to count the cost and stay the course. So far, John's message has been that the light and life of God was truly manifest in the flesh in the Son. The incarnation and the cross and the ascension were no vision or dream or philosophy, but the cataclysmic single most important event in history, ushering in the new creation and making that life and light true both in Christ and in you. In the passage immediately preceding ours tonight, John described what this new creation light looks like inside of us, so that when we see even a flicker of it in our hearts and in our actions, we can have faith, indeed confidence, and assurance that what God has begun to recreate in you, he will bring to completion. However weak or wavering, If you are able to confess your sin without excuses, if you can call upon Jesus as your advocate before the Father, and if you see forgiveness as ongoing, fresh start toward obedience rather than a license to sin, and especially if you have a particular love for Christians, that is new creation light in you, very different from the darkness of the world which is passing away. However, John now says that those who abide in this message, if you stay, there will be trouble. Christians who held to the apostolic faith in the first century were perceived as intolerant in that polytheistic culture, and amidst the moral relativism of our day, 
and the high value we all place on religious freedom, Christians likewise can now be seen as narrow-minded with their exclusive truth claims. But John is unambiguous. There is no poly or relative anything in reconciling with God. The central verse of our passage tonight, verse 23, reads, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So those who hold to this confession will be countercultural pilgrims in this world and face all the hardships that accompany drawing that line in the sand. And yet, for those who go, who depart from the message that you've heard from the beginning, there will be double trouble. In the first verse of our passage then, verse 18, John encourages us with his customary reminder that he sees us as his spiritual children, and so the stairs. And then he goes full speed ahead into warning us about the double trouble departers, these fair-weather friends of Christ and the church, the Antichrists. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Now, by using the term the last hour in the first century, John immediately messes up all the timelines of the Left Behind movies. None of the elaborate and detailed dispensationalist charts work when John uses last hour from the beginning of this age. So John has no interest in illustrating Antichrist to us as a single end boss to this last level of history. In fact, Interestingly, John is the only one who uses this term antichrist in the entire Bible. He uses it three times here in 1 John and then once more in 2 John. And he doesn't specifically allude to where the saints heard about antichrist coming, but the concept was in the air of apostolic teaching at the time, though. Paul even talked about it, the coming of the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he made a similar comment with no footnote or citation either about where he had previously talked to them about it. But a reason John may use his own term here is to unencumber the idea from all its nuances and from any temptation to use this passage to get into an end times debate. With a fresh term, John can focus on what it is about the Antichrist that he is concerned with here. And what he's concerned with here is Antichrist as a principle, where if the Antichrist principle shoe fits, anyone can wear it. Anyone taking the message which you've heard from the beginning and trying to caveat it or add to it in a way that negates the whole thing, they may as well wear a name tag that says, hi, my name is Antichrist. In this sense, they aren't so much a pseudo or counterfeit Christ like our pastor's text this morning indicated. For John's term to stick, a person just needs to have an appearance of knowing and teaching Christ faithfully, but then go off the rails of orthodoxy. The trouble for these antichrists trying to peddle their novel ideas in the last hour, though, is that there's often too much light in a New Covenant Bible-teaching church for them to remain comfortable. So it's characteristic of them to eventually split. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. These antichrists are like cockroaches in a dingy kitchen being transformed into a Michelin star restaurant. 
They're exposed by the newly installed track lighting, and they scamper for cover of darkness under any stove or fridge that they can find. But the further the remodeling goes, the less places they can find to hide, and eventually they resolve to scurry out of the kitchen altogether. When the Bible trumps politics and culture, when the kids are being catechized, when the new members' classes are solid, and when the men of the presbytery don't suffer fools easily, it becomes increasingly difficult for the Antichrist to find chinks in the armor of the church where they can get their doctrine-twisting tentacles in. But before their heresies land them the left foot of fellowship, they tend to see themselves out the door. And once out, they look for somewhere safe with less oversight, like Mars Hill or social media. From there, they can lecture the church about how they just wanted to help. They just wanted to enlighten us and bring our draconian faith into the 20th century, but that we were too stuck in our old ways with the whole Jesus is literally the Son of God in the flesh and literally the only one anointed to save sinners. And they'll taunt the church about being on the wrong side of history. But one day, we'll see about that. For Jesus says in Matthew 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So John echoes what they've heard about Antichrist being a sign of the end, but says really many Antichrists have already appeared, and we see them fleeing from healthy churches. And with that introduction, the question, should I stay or should I go now, has been answered by the Antichrist. We're out. In contrast now, in verses 20 to 27, John will turn to you who persevere. You who, like Peter, when asked in John 6, do you want to go as well? And your heart says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, John has arranged verses 20 to 27 to form a satisfying, cohesive unit called an inclusio, where you can see in verses 20 and 27 in the outside verses, they speak of the anointing that you're blessed with. And then in verses 20 and 26, the verses just inside those bookended verses, John makes crystal clear that this is what he's writing to his audience about. Indeed, abiding which is Bible shorthand for what we traditionally refer to as persevering, is the overall theme of 1 John. We can work our way then from the outside verses of the structure to the center to get to the meat of what we are anointed to abide in. So from verse 20, we can glean that all you who are in Christ have this anointing, and it's cognitive in nature. The Spirit has given us this book through John to study and think about. We don't use the Bible as a pillow and hope to gain some mystical experience by osmosis in our dreams. Christians are bookish, thinking people. And yet, in verse 27, things get weird when we learn that this knowledge doesn't need to be taught to you. And we might think here, I don't know, this sounds kind of Gnostic or like Charismania here. Are we comfortable with this verse being in our Bible? Well, for starters... A bit of common sense is always a welcome interpretive tool. It should be self-evident that having knowledge without being taught does not apply to astrophysics or movie trivia or lotto numbers. And it doesn't mean that we should shut down Westminster Seminary or fire all pastors because John himself is obviously a God-appointed teacher and literally instructing us right now. 
It also doesn't mean that when you're reading the Bible devotionally and a passage coincidentally mentions a funny scenario in your life that the Spirit is giving you some sort of personal interpretation. And it definitely doesn't mean that the young lady who daydreams a word of knowledge about the super godly, totally dreamy boy in the pew over next to her, who she hasn't even met, should start shopping for a wedding dress. What it does mean is that Christians don't need antichrists teaching them the basics that the basics of the faith, like we find in 1 John or the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that it isn't exactly the truth. It only appears to be the truth. You may recall the docetic heresy that Jesus that, uh, says that Jesus only appeared to have a real body. In other words, Christians don't need anyone to teach them, kind of like second-year language professors, that the grammar rules that the students learned the first year, eh, they weren't exactly true. They were helpful paradigms to memorize and to get started, but you must grow up now, and you must grow out of those simple fictions. The point here is that language teachers are like antichrists. No, that, that's not the point. They kind of are, but that's not the point. The point is that one aspect of this knowledge, which does not need to be taught, is that you don't need to be taught something underneath or behind what you've been taught from the beginning. You are anointed to persevere in the truth, not to grow out of it. And this is delightfully linked with a wordplay throughout the passage because the title Christ means the anointed one who is exclusively appointed by the Father to save God's people from their sins, and you are anointed to abide in that truth. Another aspect of this knowledge is revealed by the fact that it is the Holy One, that is, the Holy Spirit, that gives it. Whenever the Holy Spirit steps onto the scene, you can be sure that real change or real conviction, real creation or real new creation work is being accomplished or real internalizing of the work of Christ is happening. See, the gospel may be understood as a concept by an unbeliever, or it may be believed as true even by demons who tremble at it. But when the Holy One anoints you to knowledge of Christ, it's not merely grasping the concept of Christ or believing that Jesus is the Son of God. It's knowing that the work he was exclusively anointed to do, he was anointed to do for you, to the glory of God. And this leads to the main rub the Antichrist can't deal with and must deny in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Their problem is that Jesus alone is anointed to do the work of the Savior. And there's no secret knowledge behind that. There's no universalizing this truth so that all religions lead to God. There's no getting around faith and repentance. There's no ladder to climb to become a God yourself. There is one God. There is one Father who sent his one Son and one Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him. And there is one Holy Spirit who anoints you to know and abide in the truth that Jesus is not just the Savior, but your Savior. You can't move on from this tr truth and teach your aberrant views without being slapped with a strong label of Antichrist by John. Because this is not just a truth of the faith. It is the truth. 
You can be wrong about a lot of things as a Christian. Obviously, all of us have a knowledge of the Bible that falls short of omniscience. But what the Antichrists thrice deny in verses 22 to 23 makes them not merely in error, but heretics. And for those who decide to go out from us with them, it's not merely a matter of spiritual deficiency. It is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. This is why it's no small miracle when we have a new member come up here and just affirm these truths and merely continue to say amen to the same doctrines of grace Sunday after Sunday. And why it's so important that if you find yourself under the uncomfortable situation of being under church discipline, that you don't run away or hide from the light. Be humble and let the process work and continue dialoguing with your elders as long as they are willing. This discipline is a guard to keep you on track. It's a means by which the Spirit fulfills his anointing of you to abide in Christ. So, verses 25 and 26. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now, honestly, this anointing that you're called to walk in seems pretty simple if you read the Bible. It's just trust in Christ and don't get distracted. Persevere. The tricky bit is that antichrists don't usually look like cockroaches. They are clever and likable and even seemingly respectable. When U2's Bono sings, You carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The desire to look beyond Christ can feel somehow romantic. After all, There was another command that seemed pretty simple, too. Trust me and enjoy this garden, but don't get distracted by this one tree. And somehow, the serpent made that simple task doubtful. For us as modern people today, freedom of speech and freedom of religion are rightly held up as important ideals worth defending. As we in this church well know, conflating the sword of the civil magistrate with the keys to the kingdom is bad news bears. But the purpose of our Noahic covenant-inspired freedom was never meant to be an end in and of itself or a distraction from the truth. It ought to be a rainbow under which evangelism and dialogue with your neighbor can take place without fear of government coercion or retaliation. Over time, though, the wise rejection of having those the fear of governments has become for many the foolish rejection of the fear of God. And the freedom to be wrong without fear of God has turned into the freedom from any truth at all besides what I discover inside myself. Antichrists today, then, have so much room to swim in these misguided perceptions of freedom. But there is only one path by which we are free to come to the Father. And it is his prerogative to anoint the Son as that path. But praise God, that through our, though our faith often wavers, we can have confidence that the Holy Spirit has anointed us to abide, to, preserve, to persevere in the, in the Father's Christ, so that as we consider, should I stay or should I go now, we know that the Spirit will work to complete his work of anointing us to remain in Christ. In this way, our labors to persevere 
are as sure to be victorious as the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together to bring it to fruition. And therefore, all glory goes to God. Amen.